morning. Ladies, I feel compelled this morning to tell you something. If you're currently in a relationship with a man or you hope someday to be in a relationship with a, with a handsome fella, well, what I'm going to tell you might be hard to hear, but it's going to hurt me worse than it is you. I need to tell you this. Men are gross sometimes. I can't tell you how many times I've been out with my wife at a restaurant and I have to use the restroom and so I go into the restroom and I do my business and then I go over to the sink and I'm washing my hands and the dude in the urinal next to me flushes and then walks over by the sink, keeps going past the sink, grabs the door handle with his bare, you're guilty, that's why you're going, yeah, 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 no, no, okay, and goes back to his seat. Listen, I can't tell you how many times I've been in the bathroom washing my hands, and I hear the commode in a stall. You know what dudes do in the commode, what we all do in the bathroom, right? In the toilet, comes out of the stall, walks over toward the sink, keeps going past it, grabs the door with his bare hands, and goes back to his table. I also can't tell you how many times I've wanted to follow that dude to his table, to his lovely lady sitting there and go, he didn't wash his hands. It feels like a public service announcement. It needs to be done. I have a friend, I was telling you about this the other day, and she said, hey, it's not just dudes, girls do this too. Wow, that was strong. That was, uh, the force is strong with this one. Well, let me ask you a question. Does not washing your hands after using the bathroom and then eating somehow make you a bad person unworthy of God's love. <laughs> What's your response to that? First service, they're like, oh no. You guys just laugh. Listen, it might make you sick. And Jesus probably does, in fact, want you to wash your hands after you use the bathroom. We have to teach our boys, you know, when it's time for dinner on Taco Tuesday, when they come in to wash their hands, otherwise they go right into that bag of sharp cheddar, shredded cheese without washing their hands. It's important. Jesus wants us to do this. It's really good, but it doesn't make us unworthy of the love of God. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. And today we're going to see a story where a group of people have built all kinds of rules in order to please God or to be perfect and pure and to keep themselves holy and acceptable before, before God, including rituals around and rules around washing their hands before they eat. And in the process, they miss God completely. Now, if we're honest, all of us at some point in our life have probably taken on practices and rules and things in addition, in addition to what God desires for us to try to, to measure up. And if we're really, really honest, chances are those things don't make us feel closer to God, do they? And often they actually feel like a lot of work and, and they leave us empty and exhausted. We've been in a series for the last several weeks where we're journeying through the gospel of Mark. And it's been quite a ride, hasn't it? We're learning lots about who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what Jesus invites us to. And, and really what we're trying to figure out is what is the heart of God? How do we be informed by the heart of God, by Jesus' words, his teachings, his character, and his actions. And how do those things inform us as we as a community press in and really seek to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus? Now, we've seen a lot of things in this series so far. Jesus has healed a lot of people. He's cast out impure spirits and demons. He's, he's challenged frequently the religious establishment. 
He calls his disciples, and then as he's going on all of these journeys, he's training them along the way. In Mark 6, we see that Jesus feeds the multitudes, and Jesus travels the whole area over. He's preaching the good news, and he's going to places that good religious folk would never go. And so as Jesus travels, and he's teaching, and and healing and casting out impure spirits, as you might imagine, large crowds begin to form. And by the time we get to Mark chapter 7, Jesus is a little bit like a modern-day celebrity. I mean, wherever he goes, huge crowd forms. He cannot get alone, and he struggled to get away for peace and quiet. His reputation precedes him. People hear about him. They see him. They see what he does. And by the end of Mark chapter 6, people were so convinced that he was a healer that they were bringing their friends to him. And they didn't even have the expectation that he must say something to heal. They thought, if we can just take our friend to him and touch his garment, we'll be healed. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? The bottom line is, Jesus shows up bringing the goodness of God everywhere that he went. And and as, as his popularity with the common people Uh, increase and crowds grew. The Pharisees started getting really, really agitated with him, and they confronted him regularly. And as we see in the Gospel of Mark, even earlier in Mark, there's this pattern where the Pharisees, they they confront Jesus because he or his disciples didn't behave in a way that they thought was appropriate. He didn't interpret the law the way that they did. And, And so Jesus, instead of being intimidated by that, he leverages it as an opportunity to, number one, teach the proper way to think about the subject. So they confront him about subject X, and he teaches, well, here's actually the way you're supposed to think about it, but then he also demonstrates God's heart for the people. See, he didn't just talk about God's heart. He didn't just say scriptures. He didn't just give rules and regulations. See, he demonstrated the heart of God. So in Mark chapter 7, we see that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they come down from Jerusalem once again to investigate what's going on, and they observe uh, Jesus. And I'm imagining they walk into the bathroom, and they use the bathroom, they go to wash their hands, and Peter's in the stall or in the urinal, and he walks past, good to see it, probably slows down, does a little of that number, grabs the door handle, goes to his table, and then senses the Pharisees. And unlike me, who didn't follow them to the table, they did. And they went to Jesus, and they said, what gives, man? Like your disciples, they don't do the rules that we've given them to do. They don't do these things that they should be doing. So what we see here then, the law dictates that priests must do certain things when they come to the table. They must be ceremonially pure to be considered clean. They have to do these things. And and you might remember that in the Old Testament, God had tasked Israel to be this light for all of the nations to be the model example, to bring the light of God to all of the nations. And you might also know from reading the Old Testament that Israel had a bit of a checkered past with this. They weren't perfect. They made lots of mistakes. They frequently drifted from what God wanted for them. And so a few centuries before this encounter, some people said, you know what? If it's good enough for the priests and the priests can be pure before God, what if we had everybody follow all of these rules? And in addition, they came up with hundreds of other rules, rules that would help them to do what God asked them to do. And listen, in some ways, I can understand that. It's helpful to have guardrails in life, isn't it? I mean, it's helpful to say, this is too far. It's never good to say, how far can I go? It's how far can I stay away from that line? But see, they added in all these other rules to ensure that they were connecting with God or that they were doing the things that God called them to do. It's like having a rule of don't lust for a woman. That's a really good rule. But then giving 10 extra rules, like, well, what you must do if you're around women is you must look down this certain way and walk this certain way. And after a while, those rules aren't good enough. So then what happens? Then you tell women, you must dress in this very specific way. 
so that I don't lust over me. As a matter of fact, if you go to certain parts of the Middle East today, you can see cultures where that actually happens on a regular basis. And if you've ever been a part of a legalistic tradition that prescribes additional rules or extreme adherence to man-made laws, you know that all those additional rules sometimes can be impossible to keep up with, and it can actually keep you from connecting with the God you so desperately want to and need to connect with. So the Pharisees show up on the scene, and they they challenge Jesus about it as disciples. And, And listen, if you pull back the curtain just a little bit, it's not just about hygiene. They don't really care about that. It's about their ceremonial washings. These are the washings that we do. They have a specific way of doing it. You get the water in your hand, you hold it up, it drips down in your arm, and you lower it back down, and water in that way covers all of your hands. It was a tradition. You had to do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, you're defiled. Defiled means impure, dirty, not okay. Let's pick it up in verse 6. So this is Jesus speaking. What does he say? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, talking to the Pharisees. As it is written, uh, he calls them hypocrites, by the way. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. Ouch. That would not be fun to hear, right? See, he calls them hypocrites. What are hypocrites? They're actors. They're mask wearers. They put on the illusion of having it all together, of doing all the right things. We see stories in the scriptures of people standing on the street corners and loudly praying and giving their money into the tithe and all these sorts of things to externally look really good. And maybe some of them even legitimately thought that the things that they were doing caused them to be pure. But what did Jesus say? Their hearts were far from him. He said their worship was in vain. Their their teaching was merely human rules. And I can only imagine how much it must have agitated the Pharisees to hear this. So Jesus goes on to give an example, saying that you you could have money that you should give to your parents to take care of your parents. But you could say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give that. I'm going to set it aside for God. And in that way, you don't have to give it to your parents. And Jesus reminded them that the command to honor your father and your mother, and he said, you created these rules in a way to get out of following the words of God himself. Well, why was Jesus so worked up about this? I want you to pay really close attention because I think you can be so focused on following rules and regulations that it make you appear to be pure before God, and you can do all of that and completely miss having a real relationship with God. That's kind of scary. Like, you can do all the right things. You can go to church all the time. You can go to all the Bible studies. You can pray the prayers. You can do all that sort of stuff. And it it reminds me of the scriptures where people said, Lord, we we cast out demons in your name. We healed in your name. And Jesus said, that's really nice and all, but we never hung out. I, I didn't even know you, so walk away. Fascinating. The thing is, living in a system like that always puts yourself and sometimes other people It always leads to dehumanizing people, but worst of all, it completely misses the heart of God. See, I know so many people that they focus so much time in their life on sin avoidance. Like, I don't have a problem with X, so I'm going to do everything I can to walk away from that. And their lives are a series of don'ts. I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do this. I've said this before, I heard it when I was a kid, I'm going to keep saying it until I die. The old adage, what is it? Don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't hang out with girls who do. And then it's 
a life that's a slave to what not to do. It's one thing to say all the right things, to, to do all the right things, to do your best to live in the way of Jesus. But as Rodney Pennington pointed out so helpfully a few months ago, you can do all these things to emulate living in the way of Jesus, but you can't fake living with the heart of Jesus. See, the Pharisees, they taught this faith of rules and regulations. You just do this and you measure up. You do this and measure up. You do this and you stay pure. And so they confront Jesus about, why don't your disciples follow these rules and regulations? And so Jesus calls them out on it and leverages it as an opportunity to reframe the message, to say, ah, I hear what you're saying and here's what I have to say about this, that rules should always serve this relationship, not the other way around. See, the Pharisees were so consumed with doing things proper and staying clean and staying out of the dirt and being, staying away from the wrong kinds of people. And if they thought, if I avoid these people, if I avoid the dirt, if I avoid unclean things, I, therefore, will not be unclean. The problem is in their system, God's heart for human contact was completely lost. And I think it's important that we know in God's economy, relationship is greater than rules. The scriptures point us to a relationship with God. But when we add all these peripheral things to it, the rules become more important than relationship. See, the Pharisees believed that external things defiled them, that is, kept them from being pure before God. And so they engaged in this religious system of avoidance, but Jesus flipped that thinking on its head. Look at verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. That tells me that's probably pretty important, and we should listen and understand. Verse 15, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. See, this is completely against what the Pharisees taught with all their extra rules. They thought if you just come into contact with an unclean thing, you become unclean. But Jesus said, no, 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 you can avoid all those things, you can follow all those rules, but your hearts are unclean. See, you might be dead as a doornail. At one point, he calls them whitewashed tombs, saying that externally, you've painted the tomb, and it looks beautiful, but the inside still smells like death. And he said it's what comes out of the heart that makes someone defiled. Verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, and then he gives this list of what defiles us, of the symptoms or the sort of external things that are happening as a result of a corrupt heart. He says, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Imagine being a rule follower. How many of you would say you're a rule follower? Lots of people in this room. And when you're forced to not follow the rules, you self-destruct, right? Yes. Imagine being a rule follower trying to appear good and pure and do all these perfect kind of things to avoid your heart becoming contaminated. And then Jesus sort of showing up and points out the fact that all those things that you're trying to avoid come from inside, not from out there. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, can external in, in things impact our heart? Can't they change the way that we think? Well, absolutely. Of, of course they can. It's been said that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. There's some truth to that. But here's the thing. Some of us are so focused, though, on avoiding what we let in that we strip our lives of real human interaction with people who desperately need to touch the garment of the Savior. I mean, we do what it takes. 
to stay away from things that could harm us in any way. But here's what I want us to know. A corrupt heart is a heart that isn't fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. A corrupt heart, that inside, that thing, a defiled heart, is a heart that isn't fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about surrendered like there's a gun to your head, you must surrender. I'm talking about understanding who Jesus is and what he does and what he invites us to prompts a surrender. It's not a you must surrender, although we should. It's because of who Jesus is and because of what he does, it's what he invites. See, surrender is the inevitable byproduct of following wholeheartedly after Jesus. See, surrendering our hearts to Jesus. Years ago, uh, my early 20s, I was a good little Baptist boy and was doing um, lots of things, trying to put my name out for the kingdom. But the thing is, I was in a system that gave us a lot of rules, like you can't do this. It was that don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke, don't chew kind of thing. And, uh, and so I was very convicted about that because you'd constantly hear sermons about what not to do. And some churches, by the way, are known more about what they're against than what they're for. Thank God South is not that kind of church. We're for Jesus. I'm pro-Jesus. Anybody else? Yeah, thank you. Okay. So I felt really convicted and sort of thought, well, you can't listen to secular music. You can't watch rated R movies. You can't go to Disney. You can't do all these sorts of things. And I had these CDs that I really liked. They were secular CDs, and I really liked them. Um, but I felt so convicted. I'm like, I must get rid of these things. I remember doing an event one time in a church. It was a Friday night event, and they had a casket, and they had all the kids bring their records and their CDs and all this sort of stuff. And then they went back and prayed, and my band and I went through the casket and took stuff out. <laughs> Not really. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That, was, that would have been a great idea. But anyway, so I had this great plan. Like, here's what I'm going to do. My buddy and I, were going to get in the car, and we're going to go down this country road, and I'm going to get rid of the devil, these CDs, these secular CDs that will defile me. Right? And so we went, went down this country road, and we rolled down the windows, and we threw the CDs and shattered them on the road as we're going. Not thinking about the fact that in my effort to run to Jesus, I was littering all over the countryside. <laughs> Maybe you've done that. You set those weird rules in place. And here, I don't know about you, but here's what happened for me. Within a couple of weeks, I started going, God, I really like Nirvana. I mean, so I'd go back to Walmart, and I'd buy a CD all over again and go through that cycle, and then I would litter again in this sort of effort to purge my life. Fast forward three or four years, and I ended up going on staff at this church, and there was a guy on staff who listened to secular music with pagans such as U2 and Coldplay and the Beatles, and, and he sometimes watched a rated R movie, and every now and then he had a beer, and occasionally he would smoke a cigar. And so for me, good little Baptist boy trying to please the Lord, I'm going, holy cow, you can't be doing that and walk with Jesus. But let me tell you, what confounded my brain is that he seemed to love Jesus way more than I did. He was deeply connected to the Spirit of God. And that was a big turning point in my life of going, I, this doesn't compute because I'm doing all the rules and I don't feel like I'm connecting with God. And here's this person who's doing some things that I was told you're not allowed to do, and he's connecting with God deeply. He cared for people so far from God. He was an amazing and is an amazing person. Listen, hear me. I'm not advocating for you to walk out of this room today and say, well, the pastor said I can do whatever I want, so it's time to go party Grand Central. I'm not saying that. The Apostle Paul tells us we can do lots of things, but they're not beneficial for us. My point is simply to say that, that Jesus is saying that you can do all of the right things and still have a heart that's far from God. Are you with me? 
See, Jesus shows us by our words that we can play the part, we can, we can go through the motions, our hearts can be absolutely far from God, and that's the contrast we see between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I love that the beginning of the chapter is about the Pharisees, and throughout it, we, we see who Jesus is and what he does, and so much about the heart of God. And I would be shocked if we did an honest look at our lives if most of us in here didn't fall victim to that other way of thinking at some point in our life. And that list of things that he gave, things that, that might come out of a defiled heart, I would guess that most of us could spot one or two or maybe three of things on that list that come up on a regular basis. And you know what that is? It's, it's a symptom of a heart that's not fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. That's the whole issue. You can externally look really good and have a heart that's far from God. Now, the, I, what I want to do is just cut to prayer and call it a day. But I don't want to leave you hanging going, uh-oh, I have a corrupt heart and I don't know what to do. So how do we make sure that we have a heart that's in love with Jesus, that fully surrenders to the way of Jesus? So I think Paul in Galatians 5 really helps us to see this clearly. He kind of gives the answer. Paul's a theological rock star, and in verse 16 of Galatians 5, here's what he says. He says, so I say, walk by what? The Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you're not able to do what you want. He's sort of saying that the flesh seeks outward approval. The flesh seeks to look good, to seek to do all the external right things. And Paul gives a list of the acts of the flesh, the corrupt heart. He tells us what that looks like, and it's very similar to the list that Jesus gives in uh, Mark chapter 7. But Paul also goes on to say that if we're led by the Spirit, we're not under the law. We're not under those man-made regulations either. And then he explains what it looks like to be clean from the inside to live a life that really is surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And, and I want to read this together. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Read this with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. And then he says, against these things, there is no law. See, there are laws against don't do this and don't do this, and there are man-made laws, but against those things, there is no law. It's like eating your vegetables. Eat as many as you can stand. Like, never going to get old, it's not bad for you, do it. Against love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of that, there is no law. And in verse 25, Paul tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. See, that's how we have a heart that is surrendered to him, that's fully his. And so, so the Spirit, if we do that, will produce that fruit, the love, joy, peace. So if you're asking yourself, am I connected to the Lord? Well, the question you should probably be asking is, do I see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? And if you don't, there's probably parts of your heart you've yet to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. So, so the Pharisees, they contend that being unclean came from external things. But Jesus showed that a life in step with the spirit, that, that following after God, Jesus is sort of models what this looks like. He teaches about it, and then he turns and he does it. And so the story shifts a little bit at this point in the story. But Jesus leaves that area, and he goes up north to a place called Tyre. Now, Tyre is... Um, a city way up on the Mediterranean coast, right on the Mediterranean. It's a coastal town. And I will tell you, uh, with all the snow and stuff that we have had, I wouldn't mind going to Tyre. I just want to get to a beach where it's warm, I'm tired of the snow, all that sort of thing. So here's the thing, though. Tyre was known as a pagan area. 
It was a region that was filled with people who did not know God. They did not follow God. They did not follow. They didn't care about the rules. That wasn't even in their ethos at the time. And it's an area that the Pharisees definitely would not go to. Why? Well, you guessed it, because it would put, make them what? Unclean. It was filled with Gentiles. It was filled with pagans. And, and they believed they didn't, couldn't even go there and touch the soil, that the soil itself was unclean. But I think it's so beautiful that after the first part of this where the Pharisees confront Jesus and Jesus flips the script a little bit, then we see his behavior. He goes right into the heart of unclean territory. Isn't that amazing? See, and then he goes there and he goes into this house to sort of get away. But remember, there are all these people that know who he is and they've heard rumors and they've seen his healings and heard his teaching. And so this woman boldly comes to him and she's a Syrophoenician woman, meaning she's a Gentile. Someone the Pharisees wouldn't be caught dead with. Um, why? Because she would be considered unclean. Are you getting a pattern here? And so she, but this woman though, she so believes that Jesus can heal. She so believes that she persists in asking him to cast this impure spirit out of her daughter who's not even there and Jesus relents and does it. Listen, what we are learning here is Jesus shows us the heart of God. See, he goes to an area that most people wouldn't go. He serves people that most people wouldn't serve. And, and, and as we see time and time again, he responds to the faith of this woman by restoring her daughter to wholeness. But what I want to do with the remaining few minutes we have together is to look at the, the last account in March, Mark 7. And, and it's a really beautiful part of the story. It's such a beautiful contrast between the way that the Pharisees entered Mark 7 and the way Jesus interacts with these people, with this man at the end of Mark 7. And I think it shows us an incredible picture of the heart of God. What is God like? Jesus shows us what God is like. Verse 31. So Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Listen, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus went to the Decapolis, which is southeast of Tyre. It's a region of 10 cities. There's 10 cities there. He had already been there, but he took this really circuitous route to get there because he went up to Sidon, which is another 20 miles north of Tyre before he went down to the Decapolis. Well, why did he do that? I don't know. He most definitely went through an area that the Pharisees wouldn't be caught dead in because it was filled with unclean Gentiles. And, but I wonder, is this partially Mark's way of sort of foreshadowing um, the gospel? What Paul says about the gospel, the mystery of the gospel is that the gospel was not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. See, Jesus is going and healing people and bringing wholeness to people that, that the Pharisees thought were out. Us versus them. In versus out. And Jesus is modeling he's for everyone. To the point that this woman comes to him who is Gentile and says, look, I understand that Israel, through her words, he uses this illustration about the dogs and the children. I understand that Israel is supposed to receive the gospel first and then the rest of us. But I tell you what, I'm okay just getting thrashed because at least the dogs under the table get to eat at the same time as the children do. She was relentless. And her faith, he marveled at that and he healed her daughter. So he goes up through Sidon and then down in southeastern uh, to the Sea of Galilee. And, and this starts one of the most beautiful parts of the chapter for me. There were some people that brought him a man who was deaf and could barely talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. The Pharisees, they had dead hearts. Think about this. This is really fascinating to me. God made rules to help set Israel apart, to help people remain pure. 
And then the people were so committed to remaining pure that they added a bunch more rules to help them follow the first set of rules. Then God in the flesh came to them and did not abide by their set of rules. And then they judged God harshly for not abiding by their set of rules. You catch the irony here. They were so focused on rules that they missed the God incarnate right in front of their eyes. And yet Jesus goes into Gentile territory, unclean territory, people who didn't have the script. They didn't know all of the stuff that all these other people did. And they embraced him because they, they saw who he was and what he did. And if we can honestly take a look at who Jesus is and what he does, surrender of our hearts is easy because it's the natural overflow of seeing Jesus for who he is. Imagine people uh, who loved you so much that when you were sick, they drug you to the feet of Jesus. Or imagine people who are so committed to believing that he was a healer that they drug you to the feet of Jesus. See, they so believed that Jesus could heal that these people brought this man to the feet of Jesus. And, and the man, for whatever reason, had become deaf, and he had a speech impediment that was so severe that you couldn't understand what he was trying to say. And, Imagine, I try to put myself in the shoes of this and just sort of put myself in that scene as if it were a movie. And I think, what kind of quality of life did this man have? The religious folk didn't come out and associate with him. If they did, it might have been to judge him, to condemn him, to say, well, it's, it's probably his sin that's caused him to be like this, or maybe his parents' sin, but he wasn't touched lovingly. He would have been blamed Yet what we see out of Jesus who shows us the heart of God is a twist in this story that is so incredibly intimate and it's such a marvelous glimpse of the heart of Jesus we seek to be like. In verse 33, it says, after they took him aside, after so Jesus takes him aside, there's this whole crowd there, takes him aside, puts his fingers into the man's ears and then he spits and he touches the man's tongue. See, the man is pushed through the crowds. His friends are taking him uh, where Jesus could have simply spoken a word and healed this man. But no, 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 something different happens. Something incredible happens. Do not miss this. This is the heart of this story. Listen, notice, Jesus took him, what? Aside. I would bet that this man had been uh, taken aside many times for being in the way, maybe smacked around, whatever. Yet in a deeply personal demonstration of who Jesus is and therefore um, who God is and what God is like, he, he takes the man aside. And I have to say, in the weeks that I've been studying this, this verse has gripped me. I mean, thank God we have a Savior who's deeply intimate, who's deeply personal, who pulls us aside and meets us in our infirmities, and who isn't just out there and cold and distant and judging, and who, unlike the Pharisees, gets dirty on our behalf. See, Jesus puts his fingers in this man's ears, and, and he spit, and he touched the man's tongue, spit on spit. That's pretty intimate, isn't it? That's pretty personal, especially when it's someone you don't know. See, this was the epitome, though. Listen, this was the epitome of doing something that if you followed the rules of the Pharisees would make you deeply unclean. I don't know if there's something coming back from that, because that's pretty nasty. You don't do that. That's, that's not something that you do. But for Jesus, it was deeply, deeply personal. And for us as spectators, 2,000 years later, it's deeply, deeply Verse 34, he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were open and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, 
But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. This used to happen over and over. Jesus does something like really wicked, awesome, and then says, don't tell anybody. And they're like, yeah, okay. So anyway, you're never going to believe what this guy did, right? That's exactly what just happened. But people were overwhelmed with amazement. They said this, he does everything well. He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Wow. See, Jesus is in a Gentile area, getting dirty, sharing spit. And, and I love how it says, with a deep sigh. Repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark, we see that when Jesus heals someone, frequently we see some sort of emotion come out as he's doing it. And I have to wonder, like, what is that about? And I wonder if maybe he's feeling the weight of our sin and our brokenness holding us down. I wonder if it's grief over the fact that his children, people who he loves so much, are under such bondage and hurting so badly. You know, there were lots of magicians, so-called magicians in that area at this time, and, and they would come and they would say incantations, gibberish words, and to try to work up the people and to try to do something. And I think it's really interesting that the, there's literally the transliteration of this word because it's a real word. See, Jesus wasn't going in and just casting spells and hocus-pocus. He was speaking, and I think this is Mark's way of showing that it was a real word uttered by a real God leading to a real healing. And no doubt, readers of Mark's gospel would be reminded by this passage from Isaiah. And we have this opportunity to look at this. It says, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to what? Save you. And listen, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped hundreds of years before Jesus came. Isaiah shows us what the kingdom of God looks like. He shows us Jesus' divine agenda. And Jesus shows up on the scene and goes to the most unlikely of places and heals the most unlikely of persons, exactly as it says in Isaiah 35, verse 5. The ears of the deaf unstopped, and the, cloud, the crowd was surprised and delighted that Jesus healed him. And it's such a beautiful picture of the heart of God. See, Jesus pulled him aside out of the crowd. He could have just spoke a word. They could have just touched his garment. No, Jesus got down and dirty with this guy. He touched him. He spit. He shared saliva. And touch was so important because if Jesus had said, well, be healed, the guy never could hear that. He'd see his lips moving, but he wouldn't know what he said. He didn't experience the power of that. His his. He, Jesus went beyond expectation to touch. And beyond that to intimacy of sharing saliva, deeply personal, deeply intimate. So in Mark 7, we see this crazy contrast where the first part is the Pharisees with their rules and regulations trying to help them look pure, to appear to be righteous and all these sorts of things. And I spent some time this week chewing on some words that describe this encounter of the Pharisees. The way of the Pharisees, words like rules and regulations and oppression and stress and emptiness and bondage and corrupt hearts. I don't know about you, but I feel stressed just looking at those words. That's the way of man-made rules and regulations. That does not reflect the heart of the Father. But I've also spent some time thinking of words that 
describe Jesus' encounter with this man. So the way of the Pharisees and then the way of Jesus. And it's worse like you're in tongue and dirt and spit and touch and intimacy and compassion and freedom. Just look at those words. Very earthy, aren't they? They're very human. They're very relational. Remember earlier I said relationship is greater than rules. And Jesus modeled this so incredibly well. And I guess the question I would ask is, which set of words more closely resonates with the type of king and God that you want to serve? I don't know about you, but for me it's that. I want you to listen to me. If, if you're here this morning and you believe that you're unlovable, that, that what you've done keeps God at bay from you, that, that you're not worthy of the love and affection of Jesus, you need to know that Jesus, just like he did in going to Tyre and Sidon and down to the Decapolis, he goes out of his way to meet you. He's ready and willing to forgive you and to meet with you and so much more. And listen, I think it's no mistake if that's you that you're the Spirit of God is talking to your heart. You might be here this morning and you're trapped and trying to do all kinds of things to measure up and you realize your heart isn't with him. Maybe you've gone through all the motions, you did all the Bible studies, you said all the right things, you gave the big checks, you did all these kind of things, but you realize that your heart is not fully surrendered to the heart of Jesus and to the Lordship of Jesus. Listen, you just need to know that you can just simply run to the heart of the Father and let go of those things. They just have a real relationship. He just wants intimacy with you. You might be here this morning and you have a friend or a spouse or a family member who's just broken. And maybe they've even given up on pursuing the heart of the Father. Maybe this person desperately needs an encounter with Jesus. Maybe their heart is hardened for some reason. Maybe their heart is broken. Maybe they've given up asking Jesus to, to bring them freedom. Listen to me. The scriptures over and over honor the faith of those who bring their friends to Jesus. And I just want to say, whether that's your spouse or your friend or your family member, do not give up. I plead with you. Continue to bring them to the feet of Jesus. And like that Syrophoenician woman, go to the arms of God and say, I beg you for the table scraps on behalf of my don't give up. And then finally, you might be here this morning and you desperately need Jesus to heal you. You need him to set you free. Jesus still heals today. Did you know that? This isn't just some account we read in lifeless pages made from wood. This is the story of the living God intersecting with humanity and he still intersects with humanity today. And you might be here and you need to be set free, whether it's something physical or maybe your marriage is broken or a relationship is broken or there are patterns of thinking you're so trapped in or you have addictions or, or you just can't seem to walk away from emotional bondage. I want you to know, myself and our elders, we would be honored to pray with you and to ask the Lord to heal you and to set you free. And, and I don't know how he chooses to do that. Sometimes it's instant and miraculous. That's really cool. Sometimes he uses doctors or therapists or whatever his good plan is. 
Last thing I'm going to say, the, the last thing we see in Mark 7 is that the people marveled at what they saw and what did they say? He does all things well. And the Pharisees, they, <laughs> the contrast is so stark. They judged people who didn't do things well, didn't they? If you didn't measure up, man, they judged you. They tried to do things well according to their tradition, but their heart was not in step with the Spirit. But rest assured, Jesus does all things well. Listen, Jesus does all things well. He shows us what God is like well. He goes beyond man-made boundaries and expectations to come to us. He pulls us aside and meets us where we are. And he shows us exactly what he wants his kingdom to look like. People moving back toward wholeness, relationships being moved back to wholeness, and ultimately all of creation achieving shalom. And humans living out the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the way of Jesus, and Jesus gets what he wants. And I want you to know I have no doubt that he's here, that he's in charge, that his kingdom is breaking forth in this room in this moment, and in this church, in this season that we're in, and in this city that God has strategically placed us in, and around the world, and in all of creation, the kingdom of God is breaking forth we get to be on board for the ride. And so my question is this. What is Jesus asking you for? Your money, your time, your attention? Maybe. But I think the most important thing that Jesus wants is your heart fully surrendered to him. All that other stuff will come. Listen, surrender isn't a, I'm forcing you to do this thing. It's a response to who Jesus is and what he does. And so remember, it's out of the heart that we connect with God and it's out of the heart in step with the spirit that leads to transformation. Aaron's gonna sing a beautiful song. See, it's not about rules and regulations. It's about the one that we serve. He is it. He is all. He is everything. So as, as the team sings, would you just sit and just let the spirit of God wash over you and show you if there are parts of your heart that are not fully surrendered. If there are things that you need to talk about with God, would you just use this time to let these words sink over, over you, wash over you, and respond to the Lord between 